As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Conversations from the front lines of marketing. This is B2B Growth. Today, I am here with Bob Boudet. He has just authored a new book titled Competing on Thought Leadership. I picked it up. I gave it a read. And I thought, man, this is a conversation worth having. And so, Bob, I'm excited to chat with you today on B2B Growth. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to chat about what I know uh, about this topic of thought leadership. Yes. Competing on thought leadership. So before we jump to the book, let's go. What have you been up to in the world? What's your career been about? Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what sparked this this interest for writing on this topic. Sure. Well, I have been doing thought leadership for 35 years, which means I've been doing it long before the term was concocted. Yeah. <laughs> Supposedly by Joel Kersman back in the 90s when he was at uh, Booz Allen. So what we were doing 35 years ago, we didn't really have a common term for it. We were just, I was working at a consulting firm that said the way we generate business is by writing publications and giving conference speeches and running our own conferences and, you know, trying to get the expertise that's in the head uh, heads of our consultants, package it, so to say, and get it out there in a non-salesy, non-promotional way. You know, it's like we need to educate. This is how we will educate our target audience. Mm-hmm. And those who are intrigued mm-hmm. enough and think we have something to say, they'll raise their hand, they'll call us, and they'll say, hey, I loved your speech or I loved your article. I want to talk to you more about it. Yeah. You define thought leadership as the acclaim that a firm or a person earns for developing, marketing, and delivering superior expertise, which is exactly what you just said. So even before the term was defined, that's essentially what you're doing. You're educating the market. You're doing that by developing marketing and delivering superior expertise. And when you say in solving complex customer problems, and then more broadly, and I think this is really important, you see this as a business strategy, not just a marketing strategy. So break that down a bit. How is this a business strategy and not just simply a function of marketing? So most people think of thought leadership as a marketing strategy, right? That's thought leadership marketing is, I think, what most people think about. My career has been working with firms that are in the business of delivering expertise. They sell their expertise. These firms are management consulting firms, law firms, architecture firms, IT services firms, training and development companies. 
They're in the business of selling their expertise. You're hiring them because you want to solve a certain problem in your company. So they're in the business, or they should be in the business, of creating new expertise because expertise, especially uh, in the last decade or so, gets obsolete faster. They're in the business of developing expertise, improving the expertise they have, of course, delivering it to market, uh, uh, training and developing their people to operate at the performance of the best people in their firm. And of course, they're in the in the business of creating demand for their expertise. And that means marketing, selling, and doing research when they need to take a step back and say, we need to up- upgrade our expertise on solving this business problem, or we're going to solve a new business problem, and we don't know much about it. So we're going to conduct some primary research to understand what the best companies are doing in solving this problem and, and how... The way they're solving it differ from the rest or the worst companies, especially. So there's a lot when it comes to demand specifically for thought leadership that I have thoughts on. And, but I, I think we know there's mounting complexity specifically for this audience, you're talking to a B2B marketing audience and they're going, yeah, continued mounting complexity. How do we continue to kind of all of this complexity has caused this demand for specialized expertise? for thought leadership, but also there's a ton of content out there. So so how do you think of that? There's a growing need for this demand and specialized expertise, but there's also a ton of content, right? That's right. And so the good news is there's growing demand for, for people and firms who are deep experts in their domains, a growing need. So, you know, 15 years ago, we didn't need social media experts in companies, right? Because Facebook started uh, 2002, 2003, LinkedIn, I think, around the same time, Twitter as well. (laughs) So maybe it's 20 years. We didn't need experts in social media because social media was really not a widespread thing. Now we do. And now we have all sorts of people who uh, deem themselves as experts in social media marketing. So the good news is the, the complexity in doing business, especially created by digital technology, uh, means that companies need experts to help them deal with the complexities. So that's the good news. The bad news is uh, it is so easy to find any amount of people who have an opinion or more on any topic. Pseudo-experts. Right. And so Google lets us do that. So, and I haven't done this recently, but if you typed in social media marketing experts and Imagine you'd have dozens of search results from Google and and some good content from some of those search results. So back when I started in thought leadership in 1987, there was no Google. There was no web. The way we got our expertise out was through printing publications, mail, putting them in the mail, giving speeches at conferences. That was a high barrier to entry. You had to pay for publishing, mailing, you had to you know, have people go out and give speeches, that costs money. So getting your expertise out there was a lot more difficult. It is easy today. You write a white paper, you <laughs> put it mm-hmm. on your your website, and you, you know, you do some social media marketing, and all of a sudden you have dozens of people reading it. So that makes for a crowded marketplace in just about any domain, any B2B domain. It's a crowded marketplace. And that in turn raises the bar in my mind, of quality. So when we're competing against dozens or hundreds of other people who are trying to show off their expertise 
that's a much different game than competing against five or three yep. that profess to have deep expertise on some topic. Yeah, you figure out over time as well that how you're going to differentiate, it can be on the depth of which you go. And we'll talk about some of the different sort of categories we need to be hitting on when we think of thought leadership. But I also think we're watching right now, it, this happened in B2C and I'm, it's happening more in B2B as well, where people are differentiating based on tone of voice, on personality of who the thought leader is as a individual for the company, like as a spokesperson. So you're seeing people get more and more unique in how they present themselves as thought leaders, because we realize the more crowded this gets, some of this content is getting commoditized, but there's still ways to differentiate and to be a deep thought expert in your field. And I, that's what's interesting. More voices, but still so much space for thought leadership, right? That's right. And the ultimate differentiator is evidence behind the prescriptions that you're voicing in the marketplace. Here's a great example, current example, the metaverse. Has anybody proved to anybody that companies are making a ton of money off metaverse? If they have, I haven't read it about it yet. I haven't read right? it. But a lot of companies are spilling a lot of, di- uh, spilling a lot of digital ink talking about the metaverse. Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, uh, you name it. Everybody, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it's like a land rush. Okay, the metaverse, you got to be, you got to be in there. You know, companies got to be in there. They got to play. The thought leader or thought leaders on the metaverse, I predict, will be the people and organizations that bring forth proof that companies that are doing metaverse-like things are getting significant business benefit from doing so. When we start to see those case examples and what those companies did to get those kind of benefits, then I think um, people like me will listen to them and say, oh, this really isn't hype, this metaverse. You know, it's, it's uh, not something, a fad that's going to go away in two years. There really is something there. But until, you know, until there's evidence uh, behind the assertions that we all want to make, the evidence that what I'm telling you you should do really works, <laughs> it's just theory. It's, it's it, you know, no matter how well it's put, it's still theory. I think of it as right now in this season for a platform like a metaverse, you can have reporters who then can become trusted voices because they're going, oh, this is what's going on in the space. You're reporting on what's happening. You can't report on the facts in a thought leadership evidence-based way yet because there hasn't been enough runway. There hasn't been enough time to collect all the data. But if you can distinguish your voice, let's say you wanted to be an expert on the metaverse, become a reporter don't say the don't think you're a thought leader yet because it's impossible to be one. Let's just report on what we're seeing take place, and then they'll you'll see that you had that interest from the beginning. Five years from now, when you're looking back, you are a trusted voice that built that can then talk on evidence. So that's where I think the space is with the new platforms. But you're totally right. There's a lot of people that talk like a thought leader but don't have thought leader evidence. And that's why they lack authority. So, okay, let's talk about that. What are the four elements you believe to a, a thought leadership strategy? So successful thought leadership requires, first, having a, a strategy. And that, and that really comes down to a company saying, 
what customer problems in the world do we need to own and what problems do we not need to own? Even though they're related and we could see us wandering into solving these customer problems, what customer problems in the world do we want to own? So a great example of this is a firm called Integrated Project Management. They've been around since the 1980s. Uh, they're, uh, a, a, as you can tell by the name, a project management consulting firm. They work with a lot of the large pharmaceutical companies, especially those that have vaccines for uh, COVID, in helping their people manage these very complex clinical trials and other aspects of the drug development process. So IPM, Integrated Project Management, the client problem they solve is when you have a big, very complex project with a lot of moving pieces and you can't have you know many or any pieces kind of drop, you need industrial strength, project management expertise. We're the one. So IPM, that's the customer problem that they've owned for 30 years. And that's it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can build a very large and lucrative firm based on that. In the book, I talk about a firm called Urban Science. I don't know if you remember that passage. It's a firm in Detroit that I think they're roughly 30 years old. The problem that they have owned since day one is helping auto manufacturers make the monumental decision of where do we locate our car dealers, okay? By studying traffic patterns, population, and other demographic, they're like, where do we put the dealer? Because that's a consequential decision. You put Mm -hmm. a dealer on a a wrong street, and uh, competing dealerships open in much more accessible locations or where they're, they're more of the target customer. And that hurts the dealership. And that, of course, hurts the auto manufacturer. So now they've branched out from owning that customer problem to owning some more problems of auto manufacturers, the the dealerships. But still, that's that's the customer problem that they've focused on and have stayed rooted on. And the last time I checked, they had a thousand people working in this firm, privately held firm, um, focused on largely one customer problem. How do we make the dealers make more money? One customer problem. You go on to say that then the second would be how the company will develop exceptional content about solving those core client problems. So you know, a lot of people know the problem that they solve, but many don't go to that second step of saying, we're going to create exceptional content. That's right. And they often feel that, well, the, the experience we've had in the field, whether it's a law firm you know, our lawyers know how to defend against class action lawsuits, you know, we, or our consultants, they know how to help clients design efficient supply chains. The reason for primary research is to help avoid the scenario of, you know what, our, our expertise is outdated. There's a, a new consulting firm, new law firm, new accounting firm, new what other firm that is, is aimed at the same customer problem uh, that we thought we owned, that we were the the by far the best, but this other firm has solved it better. You know, they brought new thinking to this problem. So this is the reason for primary research in thought leadership, in studying best practice companies against the rest, especially the worst practice, and understanding why do the best companies solve this problem better than the worst. And this is the kind of research that I saw work many years ago, back in the late 80s and 90s that led to the biggest consulting service of the 90s, which was business reengineering. 
It was that kind of research, studying how the best companies were managing information technology. What did they do differently than the companies that got little or no payback from information technology? It was that primary research uh, that enabled the firm I work for to say, the best companies, here's the way the best companies do it. They rethink business processes across the silos. Mm-hmm. They use information technology to share information across across silos that hadn't been shared before, which reduces time to market, improves quality, improves effectiveness. That thought leadership, that concept was built on the back of primary research. Okay? And that's the reason that firm set the world on fire back in the early and mid-90s with that yeah. concept. It did the primary research that led to the big idea. And one of the many things that Michael Hammer, who was really in the forefront of of working with the firm I worked at, he was the father of re-engineering, business re-engineering. Mike was once asked by a reporter, uh, he said, so Mike, how did you invent re-engineering? And Mike said, I didn't invent re-engineering. I discovered it. Hmm. And those words meant a lot. It, yeah. like, people thought, oh, well, Mike, he, you know, he was in a shower one day and he said, oh, well, you know, this is what Light companies need to do. <laughs> right. No, that's not what happened. Yeah. Uh, there were the research and I was a, a, an occasional researcher in, in when they when they needed somebody to help interview companies. That research uh, was based on, I think it was 60 or 70 companies that opened up their doors and talked about how they were using information technology in the late 80s. And And from Mike Hammer and the research team uh, stepping back from these interviews and saying, all right, so the companies that were getting the biggest payback from IT, what did they do differently? You know, what's going on here, folks? So Mike would say, I invented re, I I didn't invent re-engineering, I discovered it. And meaning I discovered it by having my research team do these interviews with companies that told us a whole bunch of things that nobody else had put together. Uh, the other large consulting firms at the time, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, Bain, nobody, uh, certainly the software vendors had done this kind of customer research. And um, that led to the biggest consulting service segment of the 1990s. It was a, almost $5 billion a year segment by 95, according to Gartner. So that, that's when thought leadership research pays off handsomely. Hey, B2B Growth listeners, we want to hear from you. In fact, we will pay you for it. Just head over to b2bgrowthpod.com and complete a short survey about the show to enter for a chance to win $250. Plus, the first 50 participants will receive $25 as our way of saying thank you so much. One more time, that's b2bgrowthpod.com. Letter B, number two, letter B, growthpod.com. One entry per person must be an active listener of the show to enter. I look forward to hearing from you. That led to the biggest consulting service segment of the 1990s. It was almost $5 billion a year segment by 95, according to Gartner. So that's when thought leadership research pays off handsomely. 
Yeah. So we have the, these four elements. We talked about the core problem. Then you have how the company will develop the content. You go to three and four being how to create demand for the expertise you can provide and then how to ramp up services that solve those problems. Really what I want to do because we have limited time is focus on those middle two. And we've done a bit of that here around developing exceptional content, but we'll talk about creating demand for the expertise in a minute. So if we're as marketers, we're on a mission to create that excellent content, I would say, and I felt this as a marketer, it can feel vague. It can feel kind of undefined. And when it pertains to developing thought leadership, there has to be some sort of filter that we run things through. So you've put this a bit in a list form and we'll go into it in some detail, but tell me a bit about the filter that you use to define great content. So the filter, you know, the nine criteria or nine hallmarks of great thought leading content uh, begins with novelty. Are we saying something new here about how to solve the problem? We're not saying something new. Why should the audience pay attention? They can go get it somewhere else. Depth, you know, how much are these folks showing us about their understanding of the problem and a better way to solve it? Evidence, the most important uh, of these nine criteria. Do they have proof that the solution actually works and that that has produced sizable results for companies? Without evidence, you have theory. Uh, that's all you have. Uh, relevance, you know, is this a, a here and now problem or is this a problem that they say we're going to run into in five years? Um, but but nonetheless, we must do something about it today. It's a much harder thing to make, a, to, to, to generate demand from thought leadership from, to say, yeah. you folks may not believe this, but in five years, you know, this is going to happen. Nobody's <laughs> thinking that far ahead. <laughs> and rigor, you know, I look at thought leadership as a narrative argument, you know, a problem in the world, why existing solutions fall short in solving it, a better, a new and better solution that actually works better, obstacles to adopting that new solution and how to overcome them, and then why companies should move now. So, so that's an argument to make, okay? So the rigor, this notion of rigor comes into play of, have you made a persuasive argument? Are there pieces of the argument that you have forgotten because you know the argument so well? Uh, this is going back to a book called The Curse of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. Not The Curse of Knowledge. Uh, made to stick in which the concept was the curse of knowledge. Smart people who uh, master a topic know so much about it that when they try to explain it to people, they say, let's say there's 10 logic points. They say point A, point B. They skip point C and D because... They think everybody knows that. Well, not, not everybody knows that. And so they you get lost in the argument. So, so rigor of argument. Is this a persuasive argument? Uh, and part of that is evidence. But have they unfolded this argument in a way for the reader or viewer to get it, to grasp it? Okay, that's rigor. Clarity is a little different than rigor. Clarity is, are you writing or speaking in terminology that your target audience understands? So I've read that educational level of the Wall Street Journal reader is like 11th grade. Okay? They write an 11th grade readership level. They're not writing to a PhD level, right? And so the most effective thought leaders are those who say things very plainly, speak very clearly, and don't spew out acronym after acronym and uh, high vague concept after high vague concept. So 
Um, that's clarity, and the, and and there's some other criteria, but those those are the you know the most important ones. And a, a good way to you know after you've written an article or a presentation, a good thing to do is to stand back and say, okay, does it meet these criteria? Where is it strong? Where could it be improved? How could I improve it? Evidence. All I have is one case example. Will people believe what I'm trying to tell them with one case example. Okay, I better get a couple more. All right, get a couple more. What about the results? You know, the improvements uh, in those case examples. Are they big enough? Are, are there are there any results <laughs> improvements yeah. reported? Right. Yeah. So it's a way to kind of say, how do I know this ship rocket ship is going to actually get off the launch pad? There are ways to do that. It helps you get a baseline and then it helps with iteration because you run it back through the filter, right? It's a purification system over time that then you create momentum off of. And that's why I like thinking through it. I think a lot of us are creating content. And when you remove a piece of this, I'll go back to that same phrase because we say it a lot around here and around Sweetfish, but commodity content happens often when you're missing some of this stuff. Like you might have just evidence, but you haven't presented a point of view. So now you're lacking in a different area. And especially as we see a rise in the B2B space of a need and a want and a desire for data, every, every conversation is about data. If all your company does is present data, you're actually not differentiating yourself because you're not telling us your opinion about how you read the data. There's no room for you to be a thought leader if all you do is just provide information. So I think these nine are fantastic. Yeah, most important with that data, I mean, it's great, you need data and you need real examples. It's not just quant, right? It's it's qual. We need stats and stories, right? That's the evidence. But as you're, as you're pointing to, Benji, we also need to say, we need to wrap those stats and stories around, here's what we're telling you you should do. Here's, you know, we told you about this problem, you can decide whether you have the problem and we're telling you how to solve it. And we have Weird. the stats and stories, but that's the point of view. Tell me how to solve this problem. Just don't spew out facts and, and stories and not tell me what I should do about it. Tell me what I should do about it. And a lot of companies either don't say, okay, if we, uh, no, 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 we don't need to tell them what to do because if we tell them what to do in a presentation or, or white paper, then they won't hire us. You know, uh, then we're kind of giving it away. I've you want never, to be the guide. You want to tell them what to do because then you you set yourself up as the guide. Correct. If it's as easy for them to read your white paper or your book, just read it and 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 they can get great results. Then you don't really have much of a business. It, and, and and it's rarely that easy to just read somebody's book or read a white paper and operate at the level of of skill that the authors operate at. It's never that. It's never that easy. Okay. So let's say we've done the work, we've done the research, we create great content. And now what we are needing to do is we're needing to create demand for the expertise that we provide. Give me an example that comes to mind for you of a person or an organization who has done this truly effectively and correctly. So one great example is a firm we worked with uh, in 2015 and 2016. It's a pricing strategy consulting firm called Simon Kutcher and Partners. They're based in Germany. They are the premier experts on pricing. You know, what should we price our product or service at? They came to us 
We help them develop a book on pricing strategy, especially for technology products. The book was called Monetizing Innovation. Uh, it's been a bestseller. It's been a piece of thought leadership that they have used that has helped them grow 50%, I think, over five years, 2016 to, to 2021. And the way and, so, and the way they brought that content to market is in addition to the book and getting a whole bunch, bunch of promotion around the book, they run conferences. So they have you know, the authors from the book. They've had them appear at their conferences. I think they were doing 40 or 50 conferences around the world before the pandemic. PR, right, getting reporters to, uh, to interview the, the book's excerpts, uh, giving uh, private company presentations. You know, a LinkedIn says, I would love your book. Can you give a, a presentation to our executives here? We'd love the book. So the, multi, the marketing mix for thought leadership is, is multifaceted. It's not just one thing. Oh, you know, we mailed that white paper. We're one and done. That's a <laughs> recipe for failure. Um, it's, it's multiple ways to the market. That book, they're still, they're still speaking on the basis of that book. Six years later, you know, Look at monetizing innovation, and and one of the two authors, Madhavan Ramanujan, or Gior, is co-author. Gior, who I think has uh, retired, but they're still marketing that book six years later. It's still, I imagine, generating business for them. So the marketing mix for thought leadership is is what I say in the book is high bandwidth, low bias, as opposed to <laughs> uh, low bandwidth, high bias. So you know. High bandwidth means it's marketing channels in which we can impart a lot of information because we're going to have to show people how smart we, we are. So high bandwidth channels are things like white papers, op-eds, uh, Harvard Business Review articles, conference presentations. Okay, high bandwidth. Low bandwidth channels um, are not nearly as effective for thought leadership. Low bandwidth is we can only impart a little information because in an advertisement, a one or two page ad, you know, we're not going to write a, you know, print a 2,000 word article in a two page advertisement or trade show booths. Okay. Low bandwidth, high bias, uh, and low bias. So, low bias is the audience doesn't think you're trying to sell them anything. You, they think you're trying to educate them. So, it's the difference between somebody speaking at a conference and somebody operating behind a conference booth. Everything's branded. <laughs> so, high bandwidth, low bias channels to market are the best ones for thought leadership. Those are different than traditional marketing channels, right? Those are, those are different. It's not like putting a golf hat that says KPMG on it. <laughs> or, Nothing wrong with that, you know, but that's not how you do thought leadership. Different type of marketing. Yeah, different type of marketing. Not to put that down at all. It's good brand image marketing. Oh, you know, KPMG is a, is a sponsor of the masters. Right? They must be a big firm. They must schmooze with executives. You know, that, that's important. Or, or or marathon sponsorship. One of our clients, Tata Consultancy Services, has sponsored the, the major marathons around the world, including the New York Marathon and the uh, Boston Marathon up here where, where, where I am. Uh, great brand image. Great brand image. Not thought leadership, though, but great brand image. Yeah. That's why I think you're so spot on with saying this is more about business than it is just about a marketing ploy. Uh, and I love that you also explain how you get the message out there as this, this ripple in the pond approach to thought leadership, right? So you have moving out from owned to shared, to earned, to paid. It's this way of thinking about it. Then I'm like, yeah, ultimately 
we have this owned property, right? And there's a lot of people, I don't want to say this, uh, I'm, I'm not going to just spout out a lot of people because that's not a fact, but I, you know there's many out there that have an owned piece of content that could separate them from the market, but they don't know how to put it properly out there for them to actually become thought leaders. They've created some piece of content that they hope is attracting people. But once you get beyond just the owned media, you have to figure out a way to get that ripple effect happening, right? So explain that a little bit, how you move out from just owned to then the ripples that you see in the pond. So obviously the own platforms are, are our websites, right? If we run our own conferences, that kind of thing. The, uh, our own, your, your email newsletter, those are important. Hey, I'm not, we're, we're not advocating against that. We're advocating for those. So the shared content are things like uh, I post on LinkedIn, right? Or I, I issue a, a tweet or, uh, or I post an article on medium.com. So those, those platforms are not yours, but you can publish easily on them, right? But anybody can publish on them. Then, so those are important. That will get the message out and get people to your own content on your website. And we think the place where you got to wind up getting people to is your website, right? Because then you begin to control the sales process, right? And what else they can learn about your company. So the shared shared content is important to get them to your website. And because there are a lot more people typically in LinkedIn than are on the typical company's email uh, mailing list. But shared content, the reader knows the difference between getting that same content uh, as a LinkedIn post and getting that content in a prestigious publication like a MIT Slow Management Review or a Harvard Business Review or the op-ed section of, of, a, of a, a newspaper. Those opportunities are earned. And those kind of publications reject more than 90% of the unsolicited submissions that they get. So the reader, reader knows the difference. Like, well, if it's in Harvard Business Review, it must be very good because yeah, the, content the curated content. Yeah, it's curated and it's edited heavily, often by people at HBR. And so I could run the same article on LinkedIn and if HBR ran it, and they wouldn't if they had saw it on LinkedIn. So, you know, we don't advise clients to do it. And I don't I don't do that. But if I managed to run the same article on my LinkedIn profile as ran under my name at HBR, <laughs> I can guarantee you the one on HBR would generate a lot more interest, would be seen as much more credible, much more believable, even though they're the same 1,200 words as what I said on LinkedIn, simply because of the credibility of that platform. So, so that's owned media, and that is really important, especially as more and more people are, are, are putting their content on their website and using LinkedIn and other shared media. You know, what kind of begins to, to separate the wheat from the chaff is, are you getting, are you earning your place in the venues that your, your target audience is actually reading and putting stock in? And then there's the paid media, you know, that's ads, right? Google AdWords, LinkedIn ads, Twitter ads, Facebook ads, et cetera, that can get to, to much bigger audiences. But, but at the end of the day, they're advertisements. And so people know that. Yeah. That to me seems like the kind of icing on the cake in a sense when you think about thought leadership. People, you can skip around within this framework when you're just thinking of, of advertising more generally. You'd, you'd jump to paid more quickly if you're thinking about just 
ads. But when you're thinking of thought leadership, you're not really at that ripple until you've created those the the first ones that we talked about there. So I love the I'm a very visual person, Bob. So I like the way that you laid that out. And one other point out about the ripples in the pond uh, is you know, and I say this in the book: the better the content you have, the bigger the rock. You know, to use this metaphor, that you're throwing into the pond, the more ripples you're creating. Mediocre content is a uh, you know is like a small is like a small rock. Throw it out there, not a lot of ripples. As a marketer, the worst things for marketers are to have to market crappy content. They dread having to do that, and for bosses to expect miracles <laughs> from crappy content or, <laughs> or mediocre content. You know, a marketer's dream is is to have truly unique and compelling content, you just know, right? We all know that that's going to get a lot more legs out there. Uh, it's going to get a lot of word of mouth, a lot of shares, et cetera, when you nail a piece of content. So the better the content, the bigger the, the bigger the rock you're throwing into the pond and the more ripples that are going to emanate from that. Yeah. I think of that because on this show, I know we're in recent weeks, we've talked a lot about pillar content. And when you're taking pillar content into this thought leadership approach, the way that you could see it similarly is even if you were just creating this piece of content once a quarter or twice a year to begin, where you're putting a ton of effort in, but the amount of content that can come out of that one piece is almost limitless. Like it's worth the extra effort to have this cohesive piece of content you've created that then other videos can come out of other topics for your blog can come out of other, but you're really, really working to make that rock as big as possible so that the ripples really are endless. We got to take, uh, we got to start to wrap this thing up. This has been a fascinating conversation, but I want to, I want to go back to basically where we were at the beginning, this idea that this has to be a business strategy and not just a piece in the marketing plan. So when we're thinking of implementation, from the top levels on down. I wonder, Bob, what would you leave us with as you think about what this should look like? What are the high-level conversations or the structures that have to be in place first for us to really be competing on thought leadership? It's a fantastic question because there are a lot of people in big firms, they're, they're head of thought leadership research or the chief marketing officer, and they will come to us and they say, we don't have a big enough budget to do what we want. Uh, most of the top management team has a skeptical view on thought leadership. You know, if it works, then they'll give us more, but they're not sure they should be doing it in the first place. That, you know, yeah, we, we're doing it because so-and-so competitors doing it. And so it's an expense that has to be minimized. That's, that's the view at the top. So if I'm that head of thought leadership research and or chief marketing officer, the best way I have found to get the folks at the top to actually take a leap of faith in their minds to believe that thought leadership is something they need to do, get a lot more serious about, is to set up conversations with key clients or, or firms that could be clients who, executives in these firms, who love good thought leadership content. Introduce those folks half a dozen, if you could get them in a focus group with your top management team and let, tell your top management team to just listen why these people, and you're going to have to select these people, make sure that they are in fact advocates, that they are big consumers of thought leadership, have, have your, your clients talk about why this is so important in the way they do things. 
I think nothing will, nothing that many CMOs will say or heads of thought leadership research will say to the bosses will count nearly as much or ought to count nearly as much as what big clients say. And the hope would be once the leadership team says, you know, the six clients that were in this room represent 30% of our revenue. Now we get a much better idea. We have a much better idea of why thought leadership matters to them. Then the light bulbs go on and they say, gosh, we got to fund this thing. You, you know, we're, we're starving you guys of funds. We got it now. If clients say it's important, it's got to be important for us. Yep. Snowball effect from there. Well, we want people to go get the book. It's called Competing on Thought Leadership. Encourage everyone to go grab it. Bob, for people that want to connect with you, what's the best way for, for them to do that? Sure. Uh, one is to look at our website, which is boudetlp.com, or they can email me at bob at boudetlp.com. Well, thanks to everyone who has taken time to listen to this episode. I know it's extremely insightful. It's one that will continue to help us as we are creating content, as we're thinking about the type of work that we're doing. And uh, so love this. If you have not followed the show yet, be sure to do that on whatever platform you're listening to this on. I'd love to connect with you, hear from you. You can do that on LinkedIn. Just search Benji Block. Bob, one more time. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, Benji. Great conversation. We'll be back real soon with another episode. We're always excited to have conversations with leaders on the front lines of marketing. If there's a marketing director or a chief marketing officer that you think we need to have on the show, reach out. Email me benji.block at sweetfishmedia.com. I look forward to hearing from you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.